Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Micah. We're in chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Amen. You may be seated. So we're continuing in our series that's focusing on the exile. And so like last week, this week, and the next seven weeks after this are going to be um, starting with a very peculiar reading uh, uh, passage that, that we begin with. So um, as you sat and listened to that, you might have thought, what, what are we... What are we doing? What is this? This is weird. So uh, we're going to spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. So um, that's really what this Exile series is going to be about, is looking at some of the scriptures that might be most strange to us, uh, some of the places where we are perplexed often when we read, and just a, a period of history um, in Israel that, that is, is a bit dark. It's just kind of shrouded just simply because of the books um, that, that are about that period of time and um, just kind of where they fall and how we come upon them often, they're, they're hard to understand. So we started last week to take a look at this exile. Uh, we're going to continue to do that. Um, today we're going to do that by jumping into the book of Micah, um, and we're going to jump into that in just a second to make sure we're all good and ready. Um, just want to repeat an announcement. Um, we kind of are done with city groups and kind of not. Just check with your leader to find out if you've got any weeks left. Um, my group won. We're already done. So um, amen. Winners. Yes just like the St. Louis Blues. Yes. Come on now. Preach. All right. So, um, sorry. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to see you. If you're new with us, um, welcome. Uh, Sarah mentioned earlier we've got some stuff you can fill out, drop in the box uh, in the back and let us know you visited and how we can help you um, connect. I know there's probably some folks, I think maybe from Alathea uh, in Tampa. Um, apparently the YMCA is under construction today, I guess. Sounds pretty cool. Um, all right, so yeah, we're going to jump into this series. Um, if you missed last week, it's kind of a precursor. Uh, we spent a little bit of time in Isaiah, um, and so that's online if you want to listen to that. Um, but this series is going to be walking through the, the period of time, like I said, called the exile. Um, so long and short of the history of Israel, right? Like Abraham gets sent by God from Ur to the promised land. He's told, I'm going to build a great nation. Um, they're going to number the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. And so Abraham follows God and his family becomes uh, kind of this nomad clan who eventually falls um, under the, uh, the oppressive rule of Egypt, 
right? And so then they grow into this mass of people in Egypt, but the king changes and the new king hates them and is afraid of them, so he um, subjugates them to uh, slavery and therefore we get the pyramid and the sphinx, of course. And then like they get led out by God's hand from Egypt into the wilderness. They wander around for 40 years and then they find themselves in the promised land um, God says he's going to rule over them in the promised land. That doesn't go so well. They have this period of judges. That doesn't go so well. Finally, they get a king. Like, they, they beg for a king. Give us a king. God says, okay, you can have King Saul. That doesn't go so well. Finally, God gives them David, who seems to be a great king. David expands the empire. It's tremendous and glorious. Uh, but David is a guy who sheds a lot of blood. He's also an adulterer uh, and a murderer. So God says, you can't build my temple. Your son will. So then Solomon builds the temple. The kingdom continues to grow in influence and power. And then after Solomon, a great civil war divides the nation of Israel into two kingdoms called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom sometimes or Judah and Israel um, and they get these capitals Jerusalem and Samaria and increasingly so if you read this in the book of first and second kings the, the kings that rule over these people are a bunch of idiots right they continue to set up shrines to other gods and other high places uh, they forsake the gathering of God's people in the temple uh, they do all sorts of stupid stuff and eventually God says enough is enough, okay? And that's the period of the exile, the introduction of the prophets, um, starting with guys like Isaiah and Micah, who we're reading today, come and tell some of the kings and the rulers in both Jerusalem and Samaria, hey, a, a, a hoarding, uh, like, rampage nation is about to come and decimate you. Um, you've broken God's law long enough. He will not stand any longer for it. Um, so Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom and beats up some of the villages in the southern kingdom and then finally um, are kind of stayed off, but then Babylon comes ultimately and finally conquers Jerusalem, burns the city to the ground, puts the temple into utter ruin, steals all the gold and the treasures and the Ark of the Covenant and all that stuff and takes it all into Babylon and then even worse, takes the people of God into Babylon into exile for a long period of time, right? So that's the exile story. And we have Isaiah, we have Jeremiah, uh, we have other prophets like Ezekiel, we have Daniel and his story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, the land of Babylon. Um, we have prophets like Micah and Nahum and Joel and you know all these ones that you're really familiar with and probably memorized them all. So these are the guys that are writing during this period of time. And often we read, like we just read in Micah 6 through 13, or Micah 2, 6 through 13, we're like, what? Right? So if you do like a Bible reading plan and you try to read the Bible in a year or two or something, this is the part where you're just like, okay, I'm going to sleep through Bible reading for the next two months, right? Well, like I, while I read through these things. And so we want to gain an understanding of these things. We want to understand Israel's story and in Israel's story begin to see our own story because we too have experienced and still in, in many ways experience exile or kind of the feeling like we're not at home. Um, and so that's, that's much of what the story of exile kind of leads us to discover is that even though we're here, even though we might have a house, even though we might have a job, even though we, we might have a family, um, we still in some ways don't feel like we're at home. And eventually that's kind of the, the feeling that Israel is left with. Because God does take them into exile, but then according to his promise, he leads them back out of exile, brings them back into the land. We'll see that when we look at Ezra, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, those guys. They bring the people back into the land, start to build stuff back up. But even after that, the people go, 
what, uh, this just isn't it. Even though they're home, even though the temple kind of gets rebuilt, even though they, they, they regain some of their freedom, they still get this sense that, oh, we're still not home. And that sense leads all the way into the New Testament, all the way to the point where Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writes a letter to churches that are spread all throughout Asia, and he says to them, uh, he writes that on the address field, he writes the exiles. That's the address field of his letter, to the exiles. So even after Jesus, even when the church has begun, there's still this sense that the people of God are exiles. Even to Peter, the, the, the close disciple of Jesus, he still says we're, we're exiles, folks. Even though Christ has come, even though we've believed in him, even though sin has been conquered and death is no more because of the resurrection of Jesus, still we are exiled people. And so we're going to be identifying with Israel in this whole process as we go. So if you've got a Bible or if you got a Bible app or something, you want to turn with me to the book of Micah. So his book is in the second half. Uh, Micah is one of what sometimes people call the minor prophets. I always like to say, don't tell them they're minor. Um, but they're, they're kind of called the minor prophets because they're shorter books. Um, but there's a whole bunch of them. So Micah is among the minor prophets. So to, turn to the right of the book of Psalms. You're going to keep going past Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, and then eventually after some of the other prophets, you'll find Micah. Uh, you should be right after Jonah, right? Yep, he's right after Jonah. Um, so Micah brings to Israel warnings of the coming judgment of God. But also what Micah brings is a great promise of hope that will yet be fulfilled. Okay, so he brings this, this proclamation of, of a warning of judgment that's on its way um, and that exile will come, but on the other side of exile, there's a great hope, a greater hope than even what we know now. He actually uh, proclaims a great hope of an entirely restored creation, which is absolutely glorious. He, he proclaims the hope of evil once and for all being conquered. But of course, before we get to the good news of the hope, uh, we've got to hear the bad news of what's going on in Israel and what God's going to do about that. So I'm going to read um, actually back in Micah 1, verses 2 through 4, to get us into Micah here. Then I'm going to pray, and we'll jump into more about this judgment that Micah is talking about. So here's Micah 1, 2 to 4. It says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your supreme wisdom and your glorious sovereignty um, that you have and are and will be in control and sovereignly ruling over all of the affairs of men. And when we look back at the history of Israel, we see that in their rebellion and in their fall and in their exile, you still were um, executing your plan uh, to bring about a greater restoration. And so sometimes we look back at this period of time, we look at exile, we look at these books of the Bible and they're, they're, they're confusing to us. We, we sometimes just, we turn the page right past them because we don't know what to do with them. Um, and so I pray today you would train us in, in not just Bible reading, but you would train us in, in just understanding the, the grace of God even in tough stuff. 
uh, even in disaster, even in, in, uh, in hard times, that you would help us to see that you are a God of compassion, that you, you are a God of justice, but even greater so, you are a God of hope, uh, one who seeks to restore um, and rekindle and, and, and lead and, and love your people. Um, and so help us learn from history, not so that we can not repeat it, because we know that we do. We know that we sin, but Lord, train us as to what we do when we sin. Train us toward a, a soft and tender heart that listens to you and responds in humility with repentance and faith, because Israel didn't do that, and we want to do that, um, with, of course, the tremendous help of the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Um, because Jesus came and lived and died and rose and then was able to send the Spirit for us to help us uh, as we follow you. So open our hearts and minds, I pray, in this time. More than anything, would you just help us to see the great fulfillment of Messiah Christ Jesus the Lord, um, even uh, to these people at that time and, of course, to us now in this time. Uh, we love him. We want to know him. We want to worship him. Uh, we want to follow him. Uh, would you help us to do that by your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're kind of going to look at Micah 1 and 2 here, and what we're going to try to figure out here is what it is that's got God making these statements of, I'm going to bring judgment. Okay, what has happened in Israel that has brought God to this point of saying, I am bringing this oppressor onto you uh, uh, to, to take over and to bring you into exile? Um, and from the beginning here, we see these, these first few verses that I just read in Micah 1, 2 to 4. We see some, uh, some semblance or, or, or reminiscence of, of the creation story or even of God at Mount Sinai. Micah is, is, is coming to Isaiah to try to remind them of the great power and might of the God of creation. He's trying to say, this God of Israel is the God who made everything. This God of Israel who you have turned from is the great God of the, the covenant of Sinai, the one who was visiting Israel in the pillar of fire and in the cloud of smoke. This is the great God that you have forsaken and turned away from. He comes to Israel and he reminds them, this is no piddly little idol that you're dealing with. This is the great and only true God. Right? He is the one that you have turned from. He is the one that you have rebelled against. He is the one that you have despised. And so take, take heed and take warning. He is the only true God, the only true power that can really do what he is promising to do. Right? There's, there's a bit of trepidation in the way that Micah introduces God, the kind of trepidation that made Israel take very seriously the temple and the sacrifices and, and follow strictly the laws of the ceremony so that they would not die in the presence of God. Micah is trying to remind Israel, this is who you're dealing with, right? They've forgotten that great power of God. And in this kind of poetic beginning, he helps to remind them that this is what they're dealing with. And so God is coming to them through the prophet Micah and saying, basically, now this strength that I've used to show the world who I am, to create the world as it is, this strength is actually going to be coming against you, right? Which is utterly terrifying to think of that reality. And really, it pushes us immediately to the question of why. Why is it that God has turned his strength from being for Israel to now his strength being against Israel? What is it that has happened? And like we touched on briefly last week, we, we looked at the fact that God is a God of justice. He will not abide forever with the sin of Israel. He set Israel up as a testimony to the nations to show his great kindness and to reveal his sovereign wisdom to the peoples who did not know him. 
And so he built Israel to be his kingdom, to be his people, to show off his nature and his character, to live according to his laws, so that people would look at Israel and go, oh, that's what God is like. God is just. I see it in Israel. Okay, God is kind to the poor. Okay, I see that in Israel. Oh, God is gracious in dealing with, one another, with, with his community. I see that in Israel. Oh, God is holy. He is set apart. He is not defiled. He is not gross. He is kind and compassionate and loving and tender. They were supposed to look at Israel and see that that is true about God, but when the nations looked at Israel, they saw themselves. They saw debauchery and idolatry. They saw child sacrifice and stealing from the poor to give to the rich. This was an utter disaster. And so God was coming to testify against Israel to say, this is not what I built you to do and to be. And because you are persisting here, I have to tear it all down. Because this is not the testimony I am looking for. I will not abide with this sin forever. It cannot stand. And so Israel who was supposed to represent the glory of the one true God, suddenly becomes the enemy of the one true God. And God must take a stand against that because they've turned from his ways. They haven't kept covenant with the Lord, and they have become more like the nations around them instead of being truly Israel. Now we see that this is not just Israel didn't pray enough, right? This wasn't, they didn't go to temple, you know, hey, you didn't read your Bible, you said that word, you know, like the things that God takes up against Israel here are severe and they are not in relation to the piety of Israel, right, to the religious duties of Israel, but they are, they are according to the, uh, the cultural conduct of Israel, the kinds of things that were becoming normal practice among Israelites. Those were the things that God was confronting, things like turning to idols instead of turning to the one true God. Things like oppressing the poor that were among them, which they were not to do. And often when they were confronted about their sin, instead of responding in humble repentance, they built a corrupt system around them to guard them from God's word. They made sure they didn't have to listen to God's word, but instead could just listen to the words of men. This is utter corruption at the soul, and it's deep corruption. It's a matter of things that are so far into the heart that it shows these people were far and far from God, farther and farther from God. And so these, I'm going to take these three things, turning to idols, oppressing the poor, um, and being filled with corruption, and just find them. Uh, we're going to, we see them here in Micah, and then try to relate them to ourselves and our experience. So Micah 1, 5 through 7 Micah continues to take up his course about the judgment that is coming, and he says, this is what's coming. Uh, verse 5, all because of the transgression of Jacob, Jacob and for the sin of, sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and her wages... Uh, shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So what is Micah saying? He's saying everybody has taken part in this sin. That's what he's saying, Samaria, Jerusalem, what is Israel, what is Judah? All of the peoples are participation, are participants in this great evil that is going on. And what is it? It's an idolatry. It's a rejection of God as their one true God and turning to false hopes. 
right? Their idolatry is not just simply saying God is not God, but their idolatry is saying actually this thing is God. The little g-gods, the idols of the lands that they had, had come and lived among, they took those idols into their midst and they bowed down to those idols. They said, God isn't God, this thing is God. So if I want rescue from famine, I'm going to turn away from God and turn to this thing. If I want health and prosperity, I'm going to turn away from God and I'm going to turn to this thing. If I want safety, I'm going to turn away from God and I'm going to turn to this thing. We saw it last week. At one point, Israel thought, okay, we're in trouble. Where should we go? Egypt. They turned to Egypt for help, which was once their oppressor. Once ruled over them with an iron fist, they thought, okay, Egypt will help us. They turned to other places and other people instead of turning to the true God. And Micah uses a word image of a prostitute here, which is used in the Old Testament to often describe the spiritual infidelity of Israel. That instead of like a, a spouse, a faithful spouse, abiding with one husband or one wife forever, the, the image of the prostitute is, is the unfaithfulness of, of having many gods. And so he calls that to account here with Israel and says, this is what you've done. You've turned from me and you've turned to idols. You've sought security, happiness, wealth, safety, all of these things you've sought in other gods. And in a minute, we'll see exactly how that is a firm warning to us as well. Micah continues and illuminates in chapter 2 the oppression of the poor that is happening in their midst. This is the first two verses of Micah 2. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. There were vile and evil practices going on in Israel, where the people who had power, right, the people who had political power or, or power through wealth, uh, that they would continue to establish their power on the shoulders of the poor. And so Israel had in their laws, laws about not taking lands away from the generations of a family, right? They had laws about uh, returning land to a people after a period of time. There were, there were laws for justice in the way to handle uh, land possession. And these people were perverting those laws and gaining for themselves to, for the, uh, while forsaking the others. And so they would figure out a political way to kind of write between the lines and figure out how can we get so-and-so's land away from them. What kind of law can we enact? What kind of, of mischief can we conduct ourselves? And then they would do it. Because they had the power to do it, they would do it. And they didn't have anybody there questioning them because they were the powerful ones. Therefore, oppressing the poor, taking lands away from people, the inheritance that was supposed to belong to the generations uh, and generations after those who owned lands, they just steal that inheritance for their own sake to build up their own pockets and their own wealth and to put down those who didn't have the power to defend themselves. This was an utter turning away from the compassion of the Lord and it looked just like all of the lands around Israel. Right? When we think of ancient times and we think of, of ancient kingdoms, what do we think of? We think of people like Rome or, 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 or a guy like Alexander the Great. What do they do? They just get as powerful as possible and they take whatever they want, right? Israel began to look like that. They began to look like a bunch of jerks bullying others and taking what they wanted. And God said, no more. This does not represent the justice and the holiness of me. Therefore, 
it's going to end. It must end. Because what was God? Gracious and compassionate. Giving land to those who did not have any land. What did he take the land from? The oppressors, right? Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think God was really jerky, right? He was really mean and he beat up kingdoms, right? What God did was reverse the power scenario. That's what he did in the Old Testament. All the nations that had the power and invaded lands and just smacked people down and then set up their nasty gods and slaughtered children, right, and just set up temples to false gods, those were the kingdoms that God brought down and gave that land to Israel. Now what does Israel do? Instead of following that motif, they completely switch it and just become like the nations around them, and God says, no more. No more. Your oppression must end. And therefore, in verse 3 through 5 of chapter 2, he says, thus says the Lord. This is what he says is going to happen. Therefore, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. What is God saying? He's saying, I'm going to take the land back. Because you have not treated those in your midst like I treated you, I'm going to take the land back. He says, you're not going to have an inheritance anymore. In fact, he says, I'm going to give it to somebody else, an apostate. What does that mean? Somebody that's never followed God and doesn't want to follow God. Assyria, Babylon, they get the land. So God turns it over to them. He takes it from Israel and he turns it over to these. This is what is coming their way. A warning that the oppressors will be turned into the oppressed. Right? And the oppressors who claim to be God's people will be treated as though they are God's enemies. Right? It's a firm warning about exile that is coming. And Israel's response to these warnings is not, oh man, God is huge and powerful and he is the creator. And we're not just meddling with some, some small little idol. This is the creator. We better back up. We better consider our ways we better stop this evil and begin to do right. That's not how they respond. How they respond is just devastating. What they do is they set up an, a, a, a corrupt system to make sure that the prophets who speak these things are treated as liars and that they get other prophets to come and give nice, sweet promises. The leaders of Israel literally start paying prophets to bring false prophecy to the nation, to the people around Jerusalem to say, no, 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 no. Don't listen to Micah. He's crazy. Don't listen to Isaiah. He is, he's gone off his rocker, right? You read the story of Jeremiah. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah himself gets stolen. <laughs> people tie him up and grab him and take him away. That's what they do with the true prophets. And instead, they set up prophets in front of them to say nice things, to say, you know what? We're the people of God. God would never do that. We're his covenant family. He would never treat us like that. Don't listen to those prophets. Don't worry about the stuff we're doing. We belong to God. We go to temple. We do the sacrifices. We have the Torah. We're the ones with the Ark of the Covenant. We're the ones with the temple. God has visited us. Don't worry about what those guys say. 
Just keep going to church. Just keep reading your Bible. Just keep the Christian music station on. And don't worry about your conduct so long as you're spiritual. Don't listen to those false prophets. Disaster is not coming. Disaster is not coming. This is what Nathan read earlier. Do not preach in verse 6. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. This is the prophets they hire to speak God's word to them. Don't preach that. Don't preach that destruction stuff. Don't preach that need to turn from our evil ways. No, 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 no. Don't preach that. Preach peace. That's what you should preach. Preach evil will not overtake us. Disgrace will not overtake us. We will never be dealt with harshly like this. Preach easy, soothing things that tickle the ears and settle the conscience. This is what Israel did. God responds, should this be said, O house of Jacob, verse 7, has the Lord grown impatient? Are, his de- are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Shouldn't you listen to the words of the Lord? Are not God's words those who heal and restore and bring truth and light? But lately, verse 8, my people have risen up as an enemy. Again, here's some more of their conduct. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children take you away from my splendor forever. This is the conduct of an invading enemy that Micah talks about. It's the kind of stuff that a wicked kingdom would do at war. Steal clothing off of people's backs that aren't even engaged in the war. Take houses from women. Ruin the inheritance of children. Micah speaks about Israel as if they're an enemy of God because they've turned a deaf ear to what God has said. They've said disgrace isn't going to overtake us. In their minds, they figured they're God's prized people. In their minds, they figured they continued to do the right spiritual things. In their minds, they kept the Sabbath, maybe a little. They went to temple, right? In their minds, they'd look over to the priesthood, and they'd say, we've, we've got the priesthood. What, what does it matter what we do with our lands? What does it matter that we have a few idols and false hopes? We're still God's people. And God says, no, you've broken covenant with me. And then you've declared, we're fine. We're fine. There's no penalty for that. You've taken no warning. You've taken heed to no warning. And so Jesus, too, speaks in some of these ways and helps us to see that God's strong word of judgment is not just an Old Testament thing. It's a warning that we should take heed to as well. In Matthew 23, verses 23 to 24, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. One of the reasons that Jesus had so many enemies so quickly in his ministry is he did the same thing that Micah did. He said, your piety means nothing. Your little paying attention to tithe every last little bit 
from your spice cabinet, it doesn't mean a thing. If you despise justice and mercy and faithfulness, right? We saw this a couple weeks ago when Jesus confronted the Pharisees in their pursuit of riches because they were detaching their evil pursuit of riches from their spiritual life. They thought, oh, I can, I, can, I can get rich off the back of poor people. I can establish a greater power for myself at the expense of others and still faithfully worship and follow after God. Jesus repeated the same refrain, no. This refusal to pursue justice, this refusal to be a people of mercy, this refusal of conduct that is compassionate and kind is not what I'm after. I'm after a people who, like me, are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And so in this warning, we see a, a fairly similar warning for ourselves in that our idolatry is grievous, right? And that sometimes we enter this superior disdain for those who are lesser than us in some measure of our society's ways. We look down on those who don't have like we have. We have this disdain. We maybe don't even treat them as people. We are prone to ignore the warnings of God. But here's the thing. We like to think, we like to think well, well, I belong to God because of the religious things I do. I, I belong to God because I'm, I'm really regular at, at reading the Bible. And I'm, I'm always faithful to, to be at church. And I even give. Right? And we, we look at these, these pious things, which Jesus says, don't sh- those shouldn't be neglected either, but you should pay more attention to the weightier matters, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Right? And we're prone to. I mean, our, our, our country is kind of spun in this direction and set us up this way, that we identify ourselves by these surface-level things. You ask somebody about their faith and how they're doing in the Lord, and they, some of the first things they'll talk to you about are, are how much they're reading the Bible and praying. Not bad things! but not the weightiest things. The weightiest things are justice and mercy and faithfulness. To pursue the kind of disposition towards others that God has pursued towards us. To be compassionate. To be quick to love and forgive. To be slow to anger. To be those who build up rather than those who destroy. To take part in the assistance of those in need rather than contribute to their downfall. These are weighty things that matter to God. They mattered so much to God that because Israel denied them, he sent them into exile because they refused to listen. And so some of the warning of exile is for us because we too are prone to neglect some weighty matters, all the while thinking, well, we're fine because I do these surface things, right? Again, let's not ignore reading the Bible. Let's not ignore the need to pray, but let's pay close attention to the severe weight that Jesus gives to things like justice and mercy. And the question then stands for us is, well, if we struggle in these areas, if we don't reflect God in some of these ways, are are we in danger of exile? Is God going to burn our cities down? Right? Is Canada going (laughs) to invade and like we're done? Like, What's going to happen, right? Are we in danger of this exile? And answer is, well, no and yes. 
because we'll truly show who we are based on some of our response to God's warning. But also, God did something after exile that we have behold, we have beheld in the work of Jesus. We see that God has two ways of dealing with those who sin in these ways. Deserved justice or undeserved grace. These are the ways that God deals with these things. And that's why Micah 2, 12 and 13 are essential when we look at this. Right? Because we see these things, these warnings, these sins. We sense maybe, oh my gosh, I'm not paying attention to the right things in my life. I better take this stuff seriously. And we get into this anxious, troubled, ah, I'm doomed type of sense. Fall under fear. Begin to try to do things out of a response of fear. And we miss the essential hope, even here in Micah 2. Because in verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is a promise of hope tucked in there amongst the warnings of judgment. And Micah does this in his whole book. He warns and then he gives hope. He warns and then he gives hope. He warns and then he gives a great hope at the end. And many of these prophets, these minor prophets that we read, they do the same. They warn and they give hope. They warn and they give hope. The warnings are strong. They're very, very poignant. They're often lengthy. They're scary. They're filled with a lot of terrifying imagery. And then the hope always points to the coming Messiah, Jesus. And in Micah's case, the, pro the prophecy of Jesus coming is the prophecy of a shepherd king who will lead Israel. Micah makes a promise of this shepherd king who will lead Israel. Israel has rejected God as their God, right? They've fallen uh, down and turned to these false idols, the things that have no power. Because they've turned from these things, they've sought after other ways of finding fulfillment and seeking these other ways of fulfillment has turned them into a people of oppression a people who ignore justice and mercy and they turn their backs on God and even when they're warned they lie to themselves they say God would not bring such a word against us they surround themselves with these false prophets to comfort them in their evil deeds they go on as li living as if there's no expectation from God for them to be just and merciful. And God's response is, I'm going to send you into exile and I'm going to utterly restore you. I'm going to bring a great restoration. God makes this promise before any bit of repentance comes out of the mouth of Israel. God makes the promise of restoration to them before exile happens, before they weep for their evil deeds, before they hit the dirt in mourning. God makes the promise, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to take you back, not just to the land, but actually take you back to myself. And in so doing, I'm going to send you a true leader. And this leader, we see Micah say, this leader is going to win the ultimate battle for you. 
He's going to go before you. He's going to win the battle, and he's going to lead you out. And that leader is who? The Lord. The leader is the Lord, right? The promised, restorative leader is God himself. It's God's way of saying, listen, you've had kings before. You've had prophets before. You've had judges before. You've had priests before. And none of them are sufficient for they cannot be there only but men and women. I will send you myself. Jesus comes as God in the flesh to be the true shepherd king that Israel needed, the true shepherd king that we need, who would go into battle and win the final victory and lead us out of exile. This is Christ Jesus. And what's crazy, crazy about Jesus is how he won the battle. How did Jesus win? Like those oppressive kingdoms that surrounded Israel? By mounting up an army, jumping on a war horse, cutting heads off, running people through? He laid his life down. Jesus finally, totally, and perfectly shows victory the way that God always intended it to be. By service. Winning by giving. Right? This is what Jesus did. And then we look at the, 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 the prophecies in Micah, the warnings in Micah, and we see them in the life of Jesus. Because what was Jesus? He was living as a poor man. Right? Jesus was living as though he were someone who had no claim to any land inheritance of his own. That's how Jesus lived. Even though he was a son, he was treated like the enemy of God. That Jesus in his life and in his death, he encountered disaster. He goes into exile. He is beating, beaten into pieces. The Lord descends on the high place, Calvary, and what happens? Jesus is destroyed. Darkness covers the land. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Why, God, have you forsaken me? Israel was forsaken for a time and God was faithful to restore them. Jesus was forsaken to his death. Jesus took that on for Israel's sake. Jesus took that on for my sake. Jesus took that on for your sake. Listen to Micah 1.4 again. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down on a steep place. Yes, that happened to Israel, but more yes, that happened to Jesus. The ultimate judgment for Israel's sin and rebellion fell on Jesus. This is why we can say, do we have to fear exile? Eh, yes, but no. Why? Because it fell on Jesus. And when we take shelter under the shepherd king Jesus, we find victory has finally been won, that the greatest enemy is not an invading Assyria, it's not an invading Babylon, it's not being captive in a foreign land, it's not being poor or destitute or losing our job or our friends or our family or any of these things. The greatest enemy that we could ever see is the enemy of sin and Jesus once and for all dealt the death blow on sin. Not by taking up a sword and fighting back, but by surrendering. This is the great hope, the great promise of Micah and Isaiah and many of the other prophets of the exile. That yes, judgment must come so that God can purify Israel, but ultimately the shepherd king will come and save it all those who have faith and rest and trust in him. Listen to what Jesus said in his ministry. 
Matthew 9, 35, we'll close with this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the state of us fallen humans that we were scattered about that we had no hope, that we had no leader, that we had no rescue, that we were like sheep without a shepherd and he came to be the shepherd king for us by laying down his life, by conquering sin and death and rising again to new life. This is the hope that we have, that even though we face the severity of God, we know that ultimately, ultimately, the judgment of God is expressed on Jesus and we're set free, amen? Which leads to real worship, which leads to real humility which leads to actually pursuing justice and mercy like God always intended because we recognize we haven't gotten what we deserve. We got what Jesus deserved. We've gotten goodness. We've received blessing. We've received grace and honor and adoption and sonship and daughtership and possessions and the land. He's given it to us freely and graciously. Therefore, abundantly we worship. And we say, God, I'm yours. Do with me as you please. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. The warnings of these prophets are often strange to our ears, but God, would you help them to ring true to our hearts, to know that you care deeply about how we conduct our lives, not just in our religious duties, but in our everyday practices, the way we look at others, whether we're compassionate and kind to those around us, whether we extend mercy and grace, whether we're quick to forgive and slow to anger, whether we seek to, to, to pay back on our own or, or allow uh, justice to fall into the hands of God, how we, how we do these things exhibits our hearts and shows whether we've truly believed that you are God, that you are good, and that you have led us into a right place. God, I pray that we would respond with humility and faith, not like Israel responded by saying, <laughs> I need a different preacher. I need a, I need a different prophet, one who will say I'm fine, I'm good, and everything's hunky-dory. I need, I need a prophet that is true to warn me of my evil and to push me towards the one who is gracious and willing to forgive as soon as I call on his name because we know that the shepherd king has come and that he has won the battle and that the only requirement for getting in on his side is repentance and faith to own our sin, to say, yes, Lord, I've fallen and I've failed, but you are gracious to those who come to you. So, Lord, we humble ourselves today. We, we admit openly we aren't perfect. We admit openly we often go way off the center line. We are prone to failure. We are prone to injustice and mercilessness and faithlessness. Oh, God, would you soften our hearts Oh God, would you turn us from wicked ways, help us by your spirit to pursue faithfulness, to be the kind of people that are an example of God's coming kingdom. We need your spirit's help to do this. We need new hearts to do this. And we know the only place for those new hearts to be gained is at the throne of grace. And so we come to you today asking again for grace and mercy in our time of need. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.